Welcome to episode 34 of Stage Worthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. On Stage Worthy, I interview people who make theater, actors, directors, playwrights, and more, and talk to them about everything from why they chose the theater to their work process and anything in between. You can find Stage Worthy on Facebook and Twitter at Stage Worthy Pod, and you can find the website at stageworthypodcast.com. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or Google Music or whatever podcast app you use and consider leaving a comment or rating. My guest is Brian Boodoo, a Hamilton-based playwright. His play, The Perpetual Sunshine Machine, just closed at the Hamilton Fringe Festival. That's right. I haven't had a chance to see that, but how, how has the record going for you? It's been going really well. Um, this is the first time we've done it. It's a completely new work, so it's uh, it's evolving before my eyes, which is sort of a good thing, I think. Um, in, in what way, when you say that it's evolving, how, how, is it, how is it changing? Well, I think it's getting... It's interesting. I think the more we do it, the more the show changes, it becomes... Um, it becomes a little less uh, comedic and scattered and it becomes more about the essence of the show which is sort of about family and loss and uh, it's really kind of got this dramatic core to it Um, so it's changing in that way I think cool yeah Um, are you finding that that surprising to to make those discoveries during the run or Frankly, yes. <laughs> you know, I know shows change, um, and I kind of, you know, when I wrote it, and, and even like, and I directed it too, and I, I really didn't know what it was. I thought it was a cool show, so you know, I write, try to write things that I like, and I think it's, you know, somebody called it unique. I think it's unique, but it's interesting how I think as. You, the actors and me upstairs, I think, get more comfortable with it, and the audience changes um, how the emphasis sort of goes uh, toward, away from the comedic bits into the more, I guess, emotional bits. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of, in terms of, like, that, all of this is a, is a bit of a, a surprise, it's not what you expected. In terms of in terms of how it's how it's evolving, um, what was? Can you tell me a little bit about the play itself? Sure. So it is. It's it's kind of a nutty play, right? It's about like everything from time travel to the resurrection of Jesus to uh, gold mining and um, absentee parents, mm. right? So it's got a lot of things going on but in my mind you know what's it really about is sort of um, people's disconnection from their natural environment and you know in a modern world and particularly this one character I mean if I had to sum it up which I think is this kind of great big thing but it's you know that's that's sort of what I was thinking at the time um, and, and 
when did you did you write this specifically for Hamilton Fringe? Did you write it and then get in the Fringe? Did you? No, I think I. Yeah, no, I think I wrote it. I, I actually, it was strange. I kind of started writing it. Um, you know, Rosemary Doyle does this thing every year where she sort of locks people up in her theater. One thousand monkeys. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've done that three years, three years, three years in a row. Have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, jeez, we might have been there last year. Yeah, I was there last year. Yeah. Oh, you know what? <laughs> All right, so we're re-meeting. Yeah, 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 we're re-meeting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, I love, I love, I love. That's one of my favorite things in the summer is, is to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, are you doing it this year? Is yeah, she, I'm going to do it this year. Yeah, it's it, year four. Oh, I, I don't know. Is she doing it next weekend? Is that yeah. the kind of thing? Yeah, it's always that, that long, always week. long weekend. So, yeah, and I talked to her. She said she was coming down, but I don't know if she's actually doing it. She's thinking about it, which is good. Well, I mean, she does have a show in the Hamilton thing. Yeah. Right now, so, yeah. yeah. So, anyway, I kind of started with that, and, uh, you know, it was like 20 minutes, and I thought, well, you know, I've got something. So I started writing it. I, th- I thought I wrote a 60-minute show. It didn't turn out to be 60 minutes. It's about 45 by the time, you know, you kind of cut and do everything. And I'm fine with that. I think 45 minutes is a good length. 45 minutes for a frame show is, is a pretty good length. It, uh, you know, it, it gives... It's enough time to develop a story. and It's enough time to, to find a, a resolution in the story. Um, but you can't go to 60 minutes. Um, I rarely see a play that's 90 minutes long that needs to be. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's a, I always look at the best official. No, I agree with that. Particularly in the context of Fringe, I yeah. think that you know you are showing, seeing so many shows. Um, the production value. I mean, even if you are well polished, yeah. just the nature of the beast, you cannot have that top-notch production value. Yeah. So I think it's nice to have it rest right into the story, get it in, get it out. Uh, rely on the acting and the storytelling. So I, I think six, I agree with you. Like the ninety-minute shows, although there are some really good ninety-minute yeah, shows. Yeah, that, that that does happen. I just I just find it a rarity in terms of ninety-minute shows that are, that most shows that are ninety minutes need to be a little bit shorter. Yeah. Um, how long have you been writing for? Well, that's a loaded question. So. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, well, I started writing creatively, I guess, in high school, and I'm, well, that was a long time ago. Um, that was, I guess, 90-something, <laughs> let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, but that was always more like poetry and short stories and yeah. things like that, and it, I think more on the dramatic front, I guess it's been about five years, mm-hmm. so. What is it that got you interested in writing for the stage? Well, there was a while in my life I stopped writing whatsoever. I stopped doing anything. I just, you know, got a job and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then I think that, like, my friend, well, Sean, who's in another show here, he said, why don't you, he started doing it. He said, why don't you, why don't you try acting for this show? Why don't you come out and audition? I auditioned, and I got some minor Shakespeare role, yeah. which was awesome, right? Because I think you, like... You read Shakespeare. People read Shakespeare all the time. And until you are in a role, seeing the world through one of the characters' eyes, I don't think you actually really get it. I always think that with, with Shakespeare, that if you're reading it, if you're just sitting down and reading it, you're not getting it. It has to be seen as a play. You need to see yeah. actors 
saying the words, and then it, it works in a way that it doesn't have the page. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And even more than that, I think if you're in a Shakespeare show and yeah. you have the character, you get to see that world unfold from that perspective, which yeah. is just a completely unusual and experience. Well, it's not. I mean, I guess all theaters like that, but my introduction into it sort of as an adult, as an actor, was through Shakespeare. And then, when did you start, go from doing that Shakespeare play to, to writing for the stage? Uh, probably about a year and a half, two years afterwards, maybe. I just, you know, I thought, I liked acting, but um, I think there are certain character traits that you have to have as an actor or a writer or what have you, right? I think it's just you sort of fall into one or the other. Sometimes both. Some people are really good at both. Yeah. Um, and they have both character traits. And, I mean, there's a certain type of person who likes to sit down at a desk and imagine things. Yeah. And then there's a certain type of person who likes to kind of get that head start and take what's on the written page and then reinvent it. Yeah. Which is a totally different skill. Um, and I, I, I still like acting. I just find, um, I find my energy doesn't go into it as much. Mm. And also, it's, uh, you know, it's a real. I do appreciate all the work that goes into acting and all the work that comes naturally to a lot of people. Yeah. But is a real pain for me. Well, you know, the thing is that, that as far as as far as acting goes, I, I know if you don't. If you don't enjoy it, then you probably shouldn't like shouldn't do it. Yeah. I knew I knew somebody when I was in theater school many years ago for whom like they always they said they want to be an actor, but they put themselves through hell. Like they were miserable when they were rehearsing, they were miserable when they were performing. And at a certain point, I know the teachers were like, So you don't seem to enjoy this. Why do you want to do it? You know? Um did you and, and you found that you didn't enjoy it so much? Did it, you found it difficult? To I, I actually, I, to tell you the truth, I find lines difficult. I, mm-hmm. I hate memorizing lines. Um, so that's kind of a limiting thing. That's <laughs> <laughs> an actor. Yeah. You're not going to get very far. <laughs> you don't want to memorize lines. Yeah, yeah. And I also found that I kind of like having, I really enjoyed having small roles in bigger shows. Mm-hmm. Because you get to see the show unwind from a certain perspective. Yes. Right? As opposed to having the big role where during the show you're always lost in it, right? It doesn't matter what your perspective is. But even during rehearsal, it becomes more about the character and the character building as opposed to the storytelling and and going through the storytelling. So in that sense, I kind of found I really like... The, the story arc and moving through that story arc in in this off, you know, I, I don't know what to call it, but hands-off <laughs> position, right? Yeah. So that's kind of where I thought, well, you know, if you want to do that, then this is being there in center stage, yeah. you know, giving the soliloquy, that's not what you really want to do. <laughs> um, you, you, you mentioned that, that you, know, you stopped writing for a while, you, you got yourself a, a day job. Yeah. Um, was that? Did you make the conscious choice to stop doing that? Um, 
In a way, yes. In a way, no. I mean, I, I think there was sort of, well, I have to concentrate my efforts on being an adult. <laughs> which, which is always kind of a bad thing to do. Never think you need to be an adult. And certainly when you start doing anything in the beginning of your career, you, there is a lot more time and, and, and stress and things involved. But uh, I, I think the conscious decision was I need to stop. I need to concentrate on my career. And I did yeah. that for a couple of years. And then somebody said to me, and I started talking about the things I do, which are you know, at best boring, at worst yeah. mind-numbing. Uh, and then somebody said to me, you know, you really are not living your life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did, I did something similar many years ago. I, I sort of, um, I did an epic project and then burned out doing that and spent about a month or two afterwards going through the motions of being an actor and then said to myself, I'm not doing this anymore. I got a job and I stopped for maybe three, four years. And then all of a sudden somebody said, would you do this play with me? And I said, yes. And I thought, well, I said yes to that really quickly. I must really want to do it. And after that I decided that I just wasn't going to sacrifice the creative aspect for the financial aspect. If I couldn't do both, yeah. then there was no point in doing uh no, I absolutely yeah. agree. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you can't, f it's a balance, right? Yeah. It's sort of a sanity thing, too. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it's absolutely a sanity thing because, you know, it's the, a lot of day jobs are not necessarily creatively fulfilling. Exactly. And if you don't have something that's going to fulfill you creatively, then you're probably going to be miserable if you're a person who needs it. You know, and the funny thing is, I was reading an article, I can't remember, I think it was New York Times, mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, but, they looked at people who had did things on the side creatively, yeah. and you know whether or not you ever become this person who can give up their day job is sort of besides the point. But they looked at how they functioned in the workplace, and they seemed to actually bring a lot more mm. to the table, right? Because I, I find Fringe and, and it's a place where it's it's such a safe space, particularly in Hamilton. Mm. Um, I, I've had one short show in Toronto, and I know it's it's one of these places that is not necessarily as safe as Hamilton because people will kill you to your face, <laughs> which is in, just like at the no. This was at Inspiranto. Okay, okay. Uh, There's, yeah. I mean, Toronto has the luxury of of the expectation that a show is finished and they are not. They're not forgiving of experimentation. Yes. So that, like, it's fine if, if you announce something. Come to our workshop production. You see the workshop production. And people come and they know what they're seeing. But if it goes up on a stage and people pay money to see the thing, they expect finished. Yeah. They expect polished. They expect finished. They expect a certain thing. And when they don't get it, they let you know. I agree with that. I also think... It's more than that. I'm not sure that Toronto's the best place for really... I, I think part of creating really cutting-edge new work is having productions that at times can be boring, right? Or just disconnecting and things like that. And I think that... Uh, I'm not sure that ultimately flies. There is a lot of stuff that uh, is cutting-edge, but it always has that stamp. Like, it's... 
won, you know, whatever, Pulitzer Prize in drama, or, and then it comes over as the Canadian production. But, I mean, that's part of being a I bigger city. I think it's one of those, those interesting things. I mean, every city has its own what it is and what it's going to be. And I think that um, I kind of feel like I get the feeling that, that you know, Hamilton is still deciding what it's going to be. Yeah. So there's a little more space for experimentation. Yeah, I know. Um, I, yeah. Toronto knows what it's going to be. And you can't tell it differently yeah. in a lot of cases. There is room for new things. They take time to develop. Um, now, interesting city, especially for their friends, Montreal. Yeah. Montreal, um, they're very. It's a very forgiving audience. If you're still working stuff out, that audience is very willing to sit there and let you do it, and they will not complain. They just, they're good. They're like, oh, you're figuring it out. Okay, so maybe if I come back next time, it'll be different. You know, they allow you the the, the room to fail, which is something you don't get in a lot of places. I actually, it was funny. I was in. Montreal this year not for Fringe but I did go to Fringe it was just at the same time and it was a really interesting experience because yeah. you think that um, with a bigger city yeah. you would you know you wouldn't have that but I think it's also because there's shows in French and English Yeah, you know it's very it's very diverse it's very I don't know that was it, very fun it's extremely diverse it also has the advantage that um the French influence is pretty heavy, so you get a lot more physical theater there yep. than you get anywhere else. You get a lot more really interesting stuff um, that maybe doesn't fly somewhere else, but it flies there. It also manages to be small in a big city. Um, it's, it's a little smaller than, than Toronto, uh, probably a little bit, maybe the same size as, as Hamilton. Um, yeah. Because it's sandwiched between two of the biggest festivals You've got the Francophone Music Festival on one side, the Jazz Festival on the other, and so Fringe kind of gets lost in that, but it's such a, a safe place. I know lots of people who like to start their Fringe tour in Montreal, just to give themselves a good, a good takeoff. That makes sense. And you sort of work things out. Yeah. Yeah, that would see that. How long have you been like doing the Fringe in Hamilton yourself? Is this your first year? Or is no, this, this is year number four. Nice. This is your number four. So we start. I started off a friend. Like, you know, it's good to have friends in theater because they encourage you to do things that you might not necessarily yes. <laughs> think yeah. of Absolutely. doing yourself. Absolutely. So I, I got really lucky. The first play I wrote as an adult, I, I wrote it. I submitted it to this company in Edmonton, and they put it on as part of like a, like a longer night. And, you know, it's kind of like winning a lottery your first time out. You're playing yeah. every single week yeah, yeah, after yeah, yeah. that. Absolutely, yeah. So I put it on, and then I took it to... Uh, they put it on, and I didn't go out. Um, you know, it's pretty expensive. It's, it's, a, bit of, it's a bit of a hike. Yeah. It's a bit of a hike. You know, anyway, I read the reviews. It went well, and then I kind of said, well, I never saw it. I might as well put it on myself. Yeah. And this is the first year, four years ago, I guess, was the first year they did the gallery series. So the Fringe had already closed. People right. are, all the shows were picked, but they had spots for the gallery series. Well, somebody said, you should do this. Yeah. Well, why not? Yeah. yeah. I know you're, like, I always find it so important to make sure that you surround yourself with creative people. Like, and... 
into uh, intermission music. Apparently. <laughs> so we're gonna try to work. It's Leonard Cohen, it just drained your yeah, soul and mine. Like, I'm so relaxed now, Leonard Cohen. Um, so you, you were talking about the, the gallery? Yeah, the series. gallery series. Yeah, and, 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 oh yeah, it was, because it's good to surround yourself with creative people. Yeah. Because they'll push you in ways that you, like, the things that they're doing inspire and push you, and the things that you do inspire and push them. It's always a good idea, because you can't, I find that in the creative arts, in pretty much anything, you can't really just sort of, you can't stand alone. Yeah. You have to surround yourself with the community, and if you don't, you kind of get lost and you burn out. And I think that's the thing about theater as opposed to, I guess when I was younger, and I remember the point where, it was funny you asked me this question before, I, I remember the point where I said, I'm done, is I had, you know, just graduated, and I had done what I wanted to do, which was publish a poem yeah. in a major Canadian literary magazine, which was Descant at yeah. the time, which unfortunately is now closed. I mean, yeah. after 150 issues, it's closed. But in one of them, you'll find a poem by me, and I thought, this was the pinnacle of yes, my of poetic course. career. Yes. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. What I found about theater, which I really like, is you have to work with other people. You're, unless you do it like you're writing, directing, doing your own show, but even then you need a stage manager. Even then you, need, you need other people. You always need other people. Yeah. Even even an audience, you need other people. And if you don't need any, you don't need an audience, you don't need anybody, why are you doing it? Exactly. You, know, you don't even need, like, just write a novel. But I always find that the best thing about writing for theater is the, that you leave space for somebody else. To make their interpretation. Now, unless you're Tennessee Williams, in which case then you write your entire, like, this is how the stage is going to look, and these are all the gestures that this person makes, here's their backstory. But it's nice to, uh, to as, a, as a playwright, to leave these empty spaces that the director and the actors are going to fill in. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's funny too because um, I, I like directing my own stuff now, and I think I've become a lot less. Uh, dictatorial about it than I used to be, right? Like, because you get taught sort of make sure everybody's on book, make sure you know you've got your blocking and things like that. And I'm sort of, well, you know, this is just my idea of what the character should really of what the character should say too, right? Yeah. Like, I I'm not sure I've got this well, totally down. I mean, Canada in Canada we don't do a whole lot of workshopping in plays in the U.S. There's a lot of workshops. Yeah. You workshop stuff, you workshop stuff, you workshop stuff. And in Canada, we just sort of basically get to get your, your first few drafts done, you decide that you're, that you're finished, you put your hands on your pants, you're done, you're going to go to production. But then you put it in the hands of an actor, and the actor might say, these words don't quite work. And if you don't have, that's why it's important to have like actors read it early on, just to make sure that, that the words work in somebody's mouth. Oh, absolutely. You know? Or worse, is that they'll think that, but never say it. Yes, yeah. 
right? And you see that, and that's why I like directing my own stuff at the at least sort of at the outset, is because I can see somebody struggling with a word yeah. and not telling me. Yeah. I'm like, okay, we need to change that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's important to be able to. I mean, I find in writing in general, but in theater especially, it's not. It's important to not be married to necessarily your text or your um, your general idea of what the character is going to be or things like that because the actor has to be able to fill that you know well, especially early on the actor has to especially the first actor they're going to inform that so much by what they do and it's funny even when you see big name shows big name mu- musicals even um I was speaking with Lila uh, Miklos last week, and it's funny. She had and she did cabaret uh, this year, and she had a very specific idea of what she wanted to bring to cabaret. Right. And it's that's what helps the show evolve and stay vibrant is yeah. actors coming to it. And even when the text is set in stone, yeah. more or less, I don't think they ever really are, unless you know Samuel Beckett and won't let anybody change anything. But I think once they're set. You still want to have that actor imbue it with something that they believe in. Yeah, yeah, they have to. Yeah, they have to. The actor has to put themselves something of themselves into it. They bring the actor comes to the text and then makes it. Um, if you if you're too rigid on, on how it's going to be said, how it's going to be performed, then you should probably just do it yourself. Yeah, you know. Um, <clears throat> so, since we're like in the last. Four, four days in the fringe, five days in the fringe? Yeah, we've got what? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, yeah, four so days. Four days in the fringe. Um, can you talk about, um, are there any lessons that you've learned this fringe? Either about your play, about play writing, about, about theater in general? Well, I'll tell you one. I, I think, um, I guess the, the lesson that I'm, I mean, it's always a lesson that, uh, you know, it's always out there, start early. Yeah. Because you can never give yourself too much time. Uh, that's very true. So start early. Yeah. But that's a lesson I've known for a while. I just seem to, uh, I don't know, ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think the, the lesson I have this time is, you know, I used to kind of think of the fringe as the end of the process, and I don't anymore. Like, I think it's been, I think it's been a good fringe for us, yeah. but I don't see this as the end of the process. I see this play and, and and you know some of the actors I've worked with Carlos I've worked with now three plays in a row um, I see the play as having a life on its own and I see myself going away and doing some more stuff with it yeah. and you know and definitely sort of working with the people and staying in contact with the team right because it's like the production company is based on my stuff so yeah. it's always people are in and out and whatever um, but I, I think that the biggest lesson is that Fringe is sort of just another step. Yeah. And I'm not sure, like, and I guess the other thing is, too, I, I'm not sure there's an end step anywhere. No, it's not, just, there, there doesn't have to be. The thing that I've always seen is that, is that, that Fringe, regardless of where, of what city it is and where it is, is a starting point. And Fringe is an opportunity to get your play seen and then to refine it take it take it further take it further and eventually 
um, who knows where you go. There are people who, um, let's say... Gone to Mervish. Sorry? Uh, the the Mervish, the, the kink in my hair. Yeah. Um, you've got uh, the, the Darley Chaperone, which went to Broadway. Yeah. You've got uh, Kim's Convenience, which toured Canada, played its Soul Pepper in Toronto. It's now a TV series. And theater careers in Hamilton. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, I've seen people who are doing shows that are, uh, you know, they've taken them to various places and doing tours around around Europe. You've got, uh, oh, was it Homer's Macbeth, Simpsons Macbeth, something like that? Uh, yeah. Rick, Rick uh, I can't remember his last name. Uh, Rick Miller uh, toured that for years doing, like, Macbeth in, as the Simpsons characters. And... Like that was that's like bread and butter shit right there. And, yeah. You know, you can like do that stuff. I I mean I've paid a lot like you know full price tickets like a lot of money to see shows that started off as fringe shows. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I'm like, why don't pay ten dollars when I got well, the chance? Because no, because fringe can be risky. You don't know, especially you know I I love the adventurous first weekend people at fringe. Yeah. I love the people who take a chance on stuff because all you have is what the artist tells you at that point or what a review or what the, the theater writer for a newspaper says. These are the things I think are going to be good. But you don't know. You don't know. I love the people who go that first weekend because they're, they're the ones who are like, I'll take a chance on anything. Yeah, no, it's very true. And I mean, you know, for the amount of time and money that you're taking a chance, I think it's it's worth it, right? You'll see... You buy a pass, you get six shows, yeah. and you just go, and yeah. whatever even, sticks. Even if you don't buy a pass, even if you pay $10 and the show turns out to be not what you expected or not as good as you expected, it's only $10 and it's only an hour. Yeah. You know? It's not It's not the end of the world. And, and you know, I always see, if I see a bad show, I try to see what do I learn from it. You know? It's important to, like, try to take something away. If you're a theater person, if you're not a theater person, if you're just an audience member... Maybe what you'll learn is that you don't like that kind of yeah. thing, but, you know. Well, it's funny. I saw a, and I'm not, I can't even remember the show, but it's a really famous European playwright. And, um, you know, I was talking to somebody afterwards, somebody I went with. I said, you know, I really didn't like this. I would have changed this, 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 and this. And yeah. I thought the story would have been a lot better. And she goes to me, why don't you... Uh, why don't you just email the playwright? I'm like, no, no, I, I, no, I, I don't think it'll go over that well. And then I thought to myself, but maybe I'll just write my own show. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. It's, you know, have you, have you ever done a talk back after one of your shows? Sit down with the audience and get the audience to talk to you about the show and stuff like that? I have, yeah. I've done a number of those. And there's, there's one, the way that I prefer to do it and the way that it's most often done are the two different things. The way that I prefer to do it is that I decide in advance what I want to find out from my audience, and those are the questions that I ask them. Yeah. The kind I don't like is just turning to the audience and say feedback. What do you think? Because the feedback that you so often get is, uh, this is how I would have written it. Yeah. You know, which isn't necessarily helpful, you know, because they're not writing it. No, and people can write their own shows. In fact, well, that's, that's right. good inspiration to write your own Absolutely show. Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. It's just that it's not as somebody who's like getting trying to get feedback for this show. How you would have written it is not necessarily the the right thing. But what you did is take that feedback and turn it into something of your own, which is which is I think what the artist does. Yeah. You know. 
the other thing I think about talkbacks too is uh, you know and they can't be helped I think they part, some of them tend towards being really for the audience right and it's yep. really about exposing the process and things like that which is fine and I think that helps but I think it's better if the talkback at least starts off with what's the audience's reaction and like you say yeah. what do you want out of this did this yeah. work because well I mean you're right there are two kinds of talkbacks there's a talkback that like follows say a workshop or a stage reading or something like that which is usually to get feedback for the show and then there's the talkback that comes after a performance yeah which is for the audience so they are two different things um and of course, the ones that are for the audience, if you don't direct them at all, then you get whatever you want, like whatever the audience chooses to do, right? I saw, yeah, I saw a production of uh, the Rocky Horror Show that had a talk back after it. It was kind of a disastrous talk back. The show was brilliant. One of the yeah. best, one of the best Frankenfurters that I've ever seen outside of uh, uh, Tim Curry, and that was Adam Razor playing that role. Which is a very difficult role to make your own. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, and he did an amazing job, but the, a lot of the talkback focused on like this minutia that that has really very little to do with the play itself. Yeah, really, you know, you never know what you're going to get with that. Well, I actually found one of the best sort of audience-facing talkbacks. Uh, I saw Twelve Angry Man- Men. I think it was Can Stage. I can't remember. It was in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, and they brought in people from the legal community. Ah. And that, I thought, was brilliant. That's interesting. Because you were able to come into the process, and the audience was able to see uh, that everything beyond just the story, yeah. all that context. That was really cool. That's a really interesting way to do it, to, to make it not about the actors. Because, you know what, that audience might have questions about the law. But these actors are just like, I'm reading lines. Yeah. I don't know. I've done some research, but not a lawyer. Um, but to bring in like experts on the topic to have them a part of the a part of the talkback is really is really a great idea. And I think you know, I think the I think it was like Greenspan too. Like they got some big big oh, names. Wow. Um, actually, you know what? It was a Mervis show. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's gonna that's gonna bring in. Yeah, and that's gonna bring in Greenspan. Yeah. But I think he loved it. I mean, he loved being up there, seeing the show, and being yeah. able to talk to a real audience about you know. Very basically, what he does. Yeah, I mean that's really that's a really interesting way to do it to to do that, and that does sound like it's something that Mervish could do is to bring in the, the lawyers and stuff. Yeah, and I, it's funny because I think I think Mervish um, over the years, over the last couple of years anyway, has done things that really impressed me, like uh, the kink in their hair, yeah. um, Arcadia when that got brought into Toronto. Like, a lot of things that um, I think are helpful for building an audience in Toronto that's not just in the main... Like, uh, just in the mainstream theater. I mean, Mervish with having the the Panasonic Theater in in Toronto, because the Panasonic is a theater that you can't put the usual stuff that Mervish brings in there. Usually Mervis is doing like the big Broadway shows and those don't work in the, on that small stage. You have to bring in smaller stuff. So then you end up with some awesome stuff like Potted Potter and stuff like that that's come out of like the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah. It's like ends up like coming to doing a tour and ending up on that stage, which is amazing. Um, yeah, there, I mean, Mervis has been doing, getting a little bit more adventurous over the last few years, bringing in some, some 
great stuff. They've been doing for a while there. They were only really doing their own. They were just bringing it touring shows, but yeah. now they're producing a little more. Which is nice. Yeah. It's great to see, because it's always great when I get to see, go to that theater and, and see a lot of Canadian faces on the stage. Which for a while, we weren't, we weren't seeing there so much. But I understand why that happened. Yeah, and I think with well, I think with with uh, other theaters, and there's so many theaters in Toronto that create yeah. a lot of good work. And I mean, uh, you know, I, I think Toronto is a great theater town. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, we're actually pretty lucky to be 45 minutes away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it there's so much talent like coming out of like you know Factory Tarragon, yeah. even the really small places that just you know, what do you do with it? And then, of course, Mervish gives you the ability to yeah. sort of use it, which the is great. The thing that really excites me in the Toronto scene, and I haven't seen a lot of it here yet, but I'm hoping that it sort of spreads over. In fact, actually, we do sort of have something like that in some of the gallery spaces. It's the storefront-style theater, yeah. like the Red Sandcastle, like the storefront in Toronto, where independent theater is thriving because the theater space is affordable in a way that... Even the Tarragon Factory, uh, uh, Passamurai are not in yeah. terms of in terms of theater rental, and so uh, it gives it the opportunity to really do stuff that so the indie scene can really flourish in a way that is more difficult when theater space is so expensive. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think the stair, like, you know, I had this kind of chat with somebody, and I think the staircase is is sort of in that mm-hmm. area. It's it's much bigger than your average storefront yeah, yeah. right it's probably two or three times as big but it's it's not people put up shows there all the time yeah, yeah. so it, it's it's interesting but I do find the storefront phenomenon in Toronto great yeah because you get access to so many shows that are not going to have the you know you have to have a big budget to get into factory or tarragon you just have to well no, you can sacrifice a lot of other things to get in there. I mean, yeah. you can fundraise and just worry about about paying for that space. Yeah. But I know people just put it on their credit cards, but it is an expensive way to do it. But those storefront theaters are are really great incubators for a lot of really great talent. And I'm so glad to see people in Toronto like Cat Sandler and, and uh, uh, Saw Show. Do you know Sex T-Rex? It's comedy and true. No. Um, fucking brilliant. Um, and uh, they've done a lot of stuff with storefront and, and, and things like that. So, and, and all the stuff that happens at the Red Sandcastle, yeah, including the the, the, the Thousand Monkeys Playwriting Festival, which is which is one of my favorite things. Um, and just like all of that stuff, it just sort of like fosters this independent theater in a way that it's sort of like fringe outside of the fringe. Yeah, no, no, I agree with that. It reminds me a little bit of the, the Mainline Theater in, in Montreal, which is the theater that basically hosts the Montreal Fringe. And they basically try to keep a, a fringe vibe going all year round, which is really awesome. And it's nice because they have that audience there. Yeah, yeah. Right, so when Fringe comes around, there's people there willing to see yeah. uh, shows like that, right? They're not coming and expecting big budget New York musical. One of the things that's kind of that's kind of because this is my first time at the Hamilton Fringe. The fringes that I'm most familiar with, you know, Toronto, obviously, and I've done some other ones in Canada. Um, 
is so in Toronto, if the show's going to be popular, there's a line. Mm -hmm. And this is the first year that you could buy 100% of your ticket, or second year you could buy 100% of the tickets online before the show. Yeah. Which last year was a huge problem because it wasn't well advertised that people would show up to buy tickets and be told that it was sold out. Um, but one thing that you have is that is that people line up for shows. People don't tend to line up for shows for Hamilton. Um, they tend to like roll in like about ten minutes before the doors open. Yeah. And sort of get their tickets and then just sort of roll in. So it's hard. It's hard to flyer a line. But I've noticed that I, there doesn't seem to be the. There's not the, the concern that a show's going to sell out. No, I think this. I think this year has been a little strange um, because there have been shows in the past where there's definitely. Um, Sellouts. I don't know why that is. I actually, I actually think the reason why it is this year is because uh, the quality of shows have been just really high across the board. Yeah. So it's not like there's a ton of standout shows because there's not a lot of there's not a lot of shows that I wouldn't want to see. Right. So that's kind of I don't know if that's helped or whatever, but there doesn't have that kind of it hasn't had that sellout this yeah. year. Because, I mean, in, in Toronto, there's always going to be shows that sell out, and you just can't get tickets for it. You know? Well, I think that's really great for other shows in the same venue. Oh, that's perfect for other shows in the same venue, or nearby venues. Like, yep. if there's, like, a, uh, like a factory, Tarragon, and Asmarai, where there's, like, yep. two spaces, it works out really well for that other space to be able to, oh, so shows sold out? Come and see my show. Around the corner. Right here, same builder, <laughs> you know? You already paid your five dollars for your button. Don't go home now. The, the Toronto Fringe doesn't doesn't do the button. Actually, no. fringes that do the button, as far as I know, are uh, there's only a few: uh, Calgary, Hamilton, and London, I think. Oh, interesting. A lot of other ones either do something like the bucket speech. Yeah. They get people to, and you get a button. You can pay five dollars. That's the Toronto model. Edmonton sells the program. Yeah. Edmonton sells the program. The people buy it. Well, I would. For Edmonton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you need that. Yeah? Yeah, so they, I mean, they, the program people, people let, I think, I don't remember how much it was, like $12 or something like that for the program. And so, you know, and, and, and that's a city that can do it. Yeah. Not everybody can do it. Well, when you're the first in the country. Well, exactly. We're, like, the biggest in the country, too. So, you can do a lot of things. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, the, 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 I think, I love when I get somebody who's, who's like, come just to see a show. Because, you know, we get, you're in the proximity that Hamilton has to Toronto allows people to come from Toronto and do a show, which means that they've coaxed a bunch of their friends to come up and see their show. And I love being able to try to convince those people to come and see another show. Yeah, it's now, sometimes interesting. Sometimes you're open to it, but sometimes you get, hey, can I tell you about my show? No. Yes, you get okay, that too. Okay, okay, I get it, I get it. They've, set, they've just sat through two hours of traffic, potentially. Yeah. They've come in, they've seen their show, they've done whatever they feel they have to do, and now they're Look, going home. Look, I just feel like if you sat through two hours of, of traffic, don't be in a rush to get back on the highway. Come and see another show. I would be like exactly. that too. But, yeah. Exactly. And I think it's funny too, when I, you know, when I went to Montreal Fringe this year, as an audience member, my tolerance for watching shows was much lower 
than it is for fringe here because I can see, I, I you know, I can see four shows a day, four or five shows a day here. Yeah. There, I think after about two, I'm like, no, I, I I'm not. <laughs> I'm gonna grab a beer. Huh. Do you know, why do you think that was? I just, I, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, part of it is that, you know, in Hamilton Fringe, you're more connected to everybody. You know yes, the right. artists, you want to see their shows, yeah. and you will sacrifice sleep to see their show. Yeah. In Montreal, I, well, actually, Colette was there, so I knew her. Um, but other than that, you don't really know the artists, and you're just there to enjoy yeah, I mean, if you're if you were there specifically for the fringe, uh, and like hanging out at the fringe, then going to the Thirteenth Hour, you probably find more than you want than you want to see. But it's hard when you just have a program. Yeah. Right. And when you're in a place that you know, you're looking for names that are familiar. Like I'm going to see that person. I want to see that person's show. And you're a little less like, uh, going to like to experiment because you don't know like what is this. Show, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, Brian, are you, are you on social media? I am on social media. Yeah, what's your Twitter handle? I'm not on Twitter. Okay. I'm on Facebook. Facebook. Um, do you have a website? No, we have our Facebook page. Okay. We're uh, facebook.com slash Be Right Back Productions, two E's, to okay. distinguish us from everybody else. Of course, yeah. And I think that's about it. All right, awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for talking with me today. It's been great. Thank you, Phil.